if you don't have any issues related to uh, codependency or a pronounced fawning response, this video is going to seem um, a bit weird and a bit redundant. Um, but I think for everybody who struggles with boundary issues, it, it should it should be useful. And it's uh, it's how to make legitimate complaints when you've got um, broken boundaries, porous boundaries, usually from childhood trauma or or maybe even intense ongoing trauma in adulthood. It damages your confidence. You start to get a sense of you don't really know what you are allowed to stand up for and what you are allowed to complain about and what you're not allowed to complain about. And it becomes, come closer, it becomes unclear <coughs> to us over time, not just what we're not, I'm not centered now, spiritually I am, not just what we're not allowed to talk, uh, complain about, but how to do it. So if I'm going to make a complaint, my tip to you is to is to try what I do, which is I don't imagine that I'm making the complaint. I imagine that I'm a lawyer, we say a solicitor for the defendant, for the claimant, and I'm the claimant. And I find that very uh, instantly empowering. It comes from a trick we used to teach people in the self-protection community. The first guy I ever heard talk about it was a Canadian um, combatives instructor called Tony Blower. And he had a concept called be your own bodyguard. This came from, and I'm, I've tried telling this story and I always make a mess of it. You need to get it from, from him. This apparently came from him uh, teaching a group of women. I think it was in America, teaching them self-defense. And um, they were responding, very giggling nervously and not being very comfortable. They didn't really want to hurt people. If the attacker hurt them, they didn't want to fight back and so on. So he being um, fluent, in neuro-linguistic programming and having a good understanding of psychology said to them <clears throat> here's a story for you the boston strangler is inside of your house and you're outside the house and he's uh, tied one of your kids to the kitchen table and then insert graphic imagery as to what the boston strangler is about to do to your child you have a few seconds in which to intervene what are you going to do and as he relates the story uh, this group of civilized middle-class uh, soccer moms turned into, you know, suddenly extremely violent uh, entities capable of delivering brute force. And they were, they started swearing. They got angry with him. They're like, how, how could you put that image inside of my mind? I'd, and they were, you know, soccer moms, but they're like, I'd fucking gouge his eyes out. I'd pull his fucking testicles through his nutsack and shove them down. And he said, okay, who gave you all black belts? Who gave you all the black belt all of a sudden? It was a reframe. The stuff that we won't do for ourselves that we will do for other people. And standing up for yourself, it's important to understand the be your own bodyguard. So you be the bodyguard to you that you would be to a child or to a loved one. And suddenly you notice, like if you reframe that, your ferocity of intent goes up massively. With the complaining and the legal issues things, I've had legal issues over, over the years. I've had people you know, um, try and close the, the brand down and close me down. And I've had um, smear campaigns. Um, the worst stuff has been in, in, in business rather than, rather than for, well, the worst. I don't know. I've had it both personally and in business. And so I, as, a, as I grew and matured, I was like, well, not every situation can be resolved by eye gouging and headbutting somebody. <laughs> I realized at some point in my adulthood. And 
um, I realized that a lot of violence in the adult world, in the in the world that matters now, because the world that matters is the money world. That's it. the only thing that matters is money. Even violence is uh, is all money now. And if you speak to, that's not just me speaking. If you speak to um, older gangsters, t- gangster types, like in their sixties and seventies, and you ask them what's the difference between now and the seventies and the eighties, was like they'll they'll tell you exactly that. It's all money now. If somebody does something to your gang, you don't kill them. You tax them. You tax them. It's some people do get killed, of course, and some people have to be. But um, money changes hands more more than anything else. And so you be your own bodyguard is is useful. I hope it would never happen to you. For most people watching this, realistically, it won't unless you work in the field of security or your police. Unless you're a drug dealer or you're forced to live in a really rough area, it will never happen to you. And what I found, if you live in a really rough area, if you're not involved in the game, even in really rough areas, you just get left alone. Usually, not always, you can't rely on that. But typically, you do just get left alone unless there's a reason to attack you or to rob you. Um, Just be, you know, in the game and that's that. So I've come up with the concept of be your own solicitor or be your own lawyer in um, uh, the American lexicon and i just asked myself because i'm 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 pretty good like i could have been a a solicitor i would have been good at it and i become ultra objective i'm like okay what's the situation what's what's the problem define it and let's get crystal clear about what it is and with crystal clear clarity let's define the claimant's boundaries and rights and let's let's define them legally and morally spiritually if you like and let's define the boundaries and the rights of the opposing party you know, legally and morally and spiritually what what should be happening here the law um, is a human effort to apply order and philosophical concepts like virtue and justice and fairness to a fundamentally chaotic world so there's n- it's never absolute it can't be there's no like it's 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 actually if you like if you wanted to have a good philosophical point of debate i i wouldn't bother with it unless i had time and i was waiting for a boss or something um you could even argue that the the, the law is unnatural law justice is completely unnatural there's no there's no justice in nature it's if you've got bigger teeth and bigger fans fangs you win but we do live in a society we do live in a world we do live in a culture that that tries to apply the law and so as much as that costs us and hurts us, which it does, um, so it should benefit us. And you should be able to play the game in those terms. So creating a legitimate complaint means you need to put yourself in the role, just pretend that you're in the role of a professional who creates complaints non-personally. That's called a, that's called a lawyer. That's a solicitor. There are people out there who do that. You hire a solicitor, um, obviously, there's different types of law and there's, there's different circumstances, but very, very, very frequently, especially if you're looking at like contract law or um, that area of law where you seek to sue, you put together a complaint. You put that's that's what that's all they're doing. And that's what they would do is they would say, OK, what does a lawyer do? What does a solicitor do? They define. They don't look at your moral uh, boundaries, your moral rights. But they look at your legal rights and they look at legal precedents. And they look at other cases and other rulings and they say, well, there are rulings in other places in other times where this is what the court ruled. So if that was the law and we're building empirically 
on previous rulings, how we try to be fair, we try, we attempt justice, fallible, hairless apes that we are, um, that's how you do it. So ask yourself the question before making a complaint. How do you know that you're right? And here's another tip from me to you. This is my personal way of doing it. Check in with your emotional state. Like, are you sure you're right? If there's any excess of aggression or resentment there, that can be there to mask guilt and the sense that maybe you're not right. And maybe you're overcompensating for knowing that it's not, you know, you're acting like this was a personal attack when actually it was a mistake. You're acting as though this was deliberate to you when actually this is what they do to everybody. Not, not to say that that's okay. Don't just pick out one thing I say in a 15 minute video <laughs> and hang off that. Sometimes you fight for that, but you want to know exactly what you are dealing with sans, ooh, French, pretentious, um, without emotion, without the coloring of emotion. It should be emotionless. Um, you want to know exactly what we're talking about here. What is your complaint? How do you know you have a right to complain? How do you know that somebody isn't offering you the service that they should, the product that they should, or whatever it is? And then another tip, once we've taken out the emotion, and once we've pretended to be a solicitor on our own behalf, would be to say, okay, actually, this is quite in-depth what I do when I complain now. I'm trying, the last time I complained was uh, to an airline. I've had to complain to an airline in the last, uh, twice in the last year. I do actually have quite, now I'm unpacking it, there is quite a system there. When you've established and you're sure, and you should feel emotion, feel certain, then become very, very, very polite. Very, very, very polite. So imagine you are... Uh, Japanese, if that helps you. Or imagine you are uh, British, like a caricature of a supremely polite, um, you know, member of the British upper classes. Be, be very polite and very professional and speak the language of business. Speak the language of corporations. Never attack the person. Never um, imply that it's, you know, you're only ever questioning the behavior. You don't question the person. So you then avoid all logical fallacies. Actually, they're extremely in-depth. Do you know what logical fallacies are? I do, because I'm a pedant. Pedant, 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 pedant. I think that's the type of joke that you should get sent to a gulag for. <laughs> uh, logical fallacy, the two most common ones that you see every time in YouTube comments would be, there's two. Uh, there's, there's a ton of logical fallacies, but the two most common are ad hominem, where you attack the person, and the second one is straw man. There's barely a, a, a confrontational YouTube comment that doesn't have both ad hominem and straw man in the very, very first sentence. Your ad hominem means to the person, you're attacking the person rather than their argument, and straw man means that you're saying something that you're accusing them of saying or doing something that they neither said nor did. Um, so avoid projection. So I, my fault, I left a Kindle on uh, an airplane and they screwed up getting the Kindle back to me. So I became very clean and polite in my communication because I'm only speaking to a customer services rep. They didn't screw it up personally. And I'm not gonna advance my cause by being rude to them or making them feel bad. That's just a, I've done it. I've been a customer services rep with the little headset on and all that. I'm just gonna make them feel bad for there's nothing they can do about it. Um, and then you have this um, this discretionary gap 
So you have your rights and you have uh, what you know to be correct and what you know to be legal and what you know to be moral, but don't be a bellend about it. Don't be a fucking tit and take the piss just because you know that you're in the right. There's a discretionary gap between this is the absolute letter of the law and this is how things work in the real world. And in between that, it's between us as human beings at our discretion as to how we resolve these things. Um, the previous complaint I had to make was about baggage being, I was on a business class flight and they lost my baggage for three days. They sent it to another part of the world and I couldn't work. So I had to buy an iPad. And so I was, I was saying to them, I want you to pay for my iPad because I needed that in order to work. And they did not have to do that. They absolutely were under no obligation um, to do that. But you know what? They actually did. They actually sent me like, what was it was like 400 or 500 euros. But that was because I worked within the discretionary gap. And I said, look, I know that this is not, it's not your fault. And I know that these things happen, but this is the amount of money I spent on the ticket. It was for work. I was going to, uh, it was, I was flying from uh, what my, London, Lisbon, let's say, for work. And you, you prevented me from working. And I had to dress like a tourist for two days because I could only uh, access shops that were selling like shorts and t-shirts and stuff. So I felt like a right tit. Um, and, you know, speak to the person. So you're, you're being a professional. You're being your own solicitor. You know what your rights are. You know what the rules are of the contract that you're in. And then within that discretionary gap, just be a decent human being. You don't have to log bomb them and be all over them and try and form some intimate connection with them. But show that you have a sense of where, what, what their position is. Yes, the letter of the law is da 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 But come on, mate. We both know in the real world this is how things are figured out. I know that you have a discretionary fund, a budget to uh, compensate passengers for, you know, uh, inconvenience and whatever. And so they did it. They did it. But I think that they did it because I was cool with the person I was talking to. So don't, don't stamp all over somebody just because you know that you're right. Don't torture them. That's how I make complaints. I actually thought that would take six minutes to explain. It took 16. There's actually quite a bit to it. Um, that's how I've taught myself to work. If it's business, if it's um, even interpersonally, but interpersonally, I haven't had to say anything to anybody for a long time. Um, this person has asked the scenario, for example, one example that she gave was, I want someone to stop weaving in, weaving in, like Tyson on the offense. Ooh, 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 big right hook. Um, and imposing their emotional and political views on me during a friendly, hi, how are you conversation unrelated to politics. So in this scenario, I wouldn't be using my complaint uh, mindset to take an action against the person, but I would be using my complaint mindset to frame the uh, interaction. So for this, I would say, okay, I'm in an interaction with somebody. You didn't describe the context. So when we're doing self-protection, when the military does battle plans, when we start talking about, ooh, what are the standard operational procedures going to be during a burglary, during a robbery, during an armed mugging? You look, I would look, and many people would look, um, context, what's the context? Who, where, how, when, what? And objectives, what are your objectives? What are you trying to get done? Is this a barista in a coffee shop? Well, um, I, if somebody, if a barista in a coffee shop that I was buying coffee from 
started talking about stuff that I didn't want to talk about, um, I would be like, I wouldn't complain. I would just no point. They're going to make me my coffee and then I'm going to walk away. If it's somebody that you need to have a conversation with and they're throwing their emotional and political views on you, um, then that would be a case of sort of sidestepping the stuff that they're throwing at you. You could let them get it out of their system and then bring it back to what you want to talk about. Sometimes jokingly reflecting back to people helps, like going, oh, I see you're doing the whole soapbox thing, trying to convert me to your weird political views. Um, This requires a sense of humor um, and a good, uh, what would you call it, social filter, social intelligence, and ability to make jokes with people that are potentially uh, offensive, but just let them know, like, hey, dude, I, I didn't sign up for a lecture this morning. I just want my coffee or I just want whatever it is that we need to have this interaction for. I'm not mad at you, um, but Tempest Fugit, I'm only, you know, I've only got so many minutes in this lifetime and you're taking up a couple of them without my consent. Uh, you said during a friendly, hi, how are you conversation? At a certain point, if somebody's stuck on dumping political views on you, uh, I would be questioning having friendly, hi, how are you conversation. Um, I'm not, well, I'm not really a small talk person. I wouldn't bother with hi, how are you conversation. I'd actually prefer the political conversation, but you don't want that. You want to have a, a sort of a, hey, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm cool. Da, 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 da. Maybe, because I don't know anything about the context or the, or the objectives here. I'm just firing out options and seeing maybe one of them sticks. Maybe you, you let go of um, having those conversations with that person. <clears throat> Ultimately, along a long, a long enough timeline with some people, you do have to let go of the relationship. Um, if I see a consistent pattern of behavior of being forced into conversations I don't want to have uh, with somebody, I just let, I just let them go. Um, recent-ish, within the last three months, there was somebody who I noticed. <coughs> the first 17 minutes of any conversation, like if, um, if I met them for a chat, the first 17 minutes of a conversation was a real whinge from them. Like they were a real self-indulgent, masturbatory whinge about life. And I'm sat there. And the first couple of times it happened, I was like, well, you know, they could be going through something. The third time I was like, still going through something. And by the fourth time, I was like, I actually resent sitting here politely and, and letting you do this. It wasn't just with me. There was a, there's a, a group of us that, that were meeting. It was, it was heavy and that you could feel the tension. Everybody's kind of sat there going, we kind of have to endure this because we like this guy and we want to support him, but wow. And then, it, and then the giveaway was the storm would break and he could have a normal conversation. So what's happening there? Well, we've been, we've played, we've put our solicitor, sorry, lawyer, hat on. Let's put our psychologist hat on. This guy is now entrained into offloading his emotional stress onto other people. Um, what would, I don't know, what would Sam Backman say about that? He'd probably say, oh, this man is ego dystonic. And he's recruiting external objects to perform tasks externally for him that should be being performed internally. Or in other words, he can't manage his own emotions. So he he is covertly controlling other people's behavior because, you know, it's either sit there and listen or make jokes about it and be like, 
wow, you're really talking like you're the only person on earth who's ever suffered, which you can get from the emotional tone of somebody, what kind of response that would get. And before you know it, uh, a person doing that can be in training the people around them to walk on eggshells. Well, what does that sound like? For those of you in the know, as soon as you hear the expression, ooh, I'm walking on eggshells, you should instantly be thinking borderline. This is now, we are now looking at borderline personality disorder behavior. There is a sort of a, I'm sensing your rage, like you're saying, good morning, how are you? I watched um, an episode of the Care Bears, a rerun of the Care Bears uh, this morning from the 1980s. But when it's said with seething rage, you get two levels of communication. One is, I'm very angry. And the other is, oh, I'm going to talk about the Care Bears. And it, it puts the recipient into a state of shock and hypervigilance because you're like, what the fucking hell is that? I mean, or, or in other words, imagine in ancient times, ancient, ancient, ancient prehistoric times, the saber-toothed tiger, you know, you wake up and a saber-toothed tiger is next to you, but he's not eating you. He's lying next to you and purring. You'd be like, okay, the behavior is friendly, but this entity has the capacity to devour me. So what, what do I do? You're a bit stuck. You become a bit stuck. So you've really got to, and at a certain point, and in that scenario, for me, I just said, I'm, I'm opting out of this. I can't, I'm, I'm opting out. I, like, I don't, I don't have time. I'm not, not only do I not have time for this, I can't be a, a participant in this covertly controlling, extremely self-indulgent behavior. I hope you didn't hear me say nobody has the right to ever complain. Nobody ever has the right to whinge even. Um, it was actually this morning, I was thinking about self-pity. And I was thinking, what? When, when we talk about self-pity, what's the, what's the difference between self-pity and actually just um, uh, dealing with a negative emotion and feeling bad or grieving? And um, it's a mini revelation this morning as I took, took a walk. But actually, it's only small, but it's quite a useful one. Self-pity is not legitimate, meaning you have no right to it. You have, it's actually a self-indulgence. If it's not a self-indulgent wank fest, it's not self-pity. It's grieving. It's grieving. The self-pity is, um, is uh, probably somebody responding at the level of perhaps an 8 to a 15-year-old. Um, and it is, a, it's like a malingering thumb sucking, which mm, is the worst thing. And it always happens to me. And it's like, dude, you've abandoned reason. It doesn't just happen to you. It actually is happening every second we're alive all over the world. Whatever your complaint is, I'm heartbroken. Somebody left me. Um, somebody stole from me. Somebody, you know, bad things. Every sec, whilst I've been talking all around the globe, uh, you just, encyclopedias full of horrors have been committed whilst we've been sat here, you know, chatting. And you, I'm chatting, you're listening. All kinds. They fill books. They fill a library. Horrors. Just horror. Just endless horror. And wonderfulness as well. And great things. The point is, it's not special. It's not unique. When you start to think it's unique, that becomes self-pity. When you are overindulgent and you're actually, there's an enjoyment there. There's no enjoyment in grief. There's no enjoyment in grief. Legitimate grief is not, it's not a fun time and nor does it shore up uh, a semi-functioning sense of self. Self-pity does. Self-pity does. Self-pity self -pity is actually part of uh, the person's identity, I would claim. 
I would claim that that that's not the dictionary definition, but in order for self-pity to be self-pity, it's actually a part of the character. It's part of the self-story rather than just a, shit, I'm going through a bad time right now. If you are going through a bad time, you should say, I am going through a bad time right now. It's a really healthy thing to do. Say it out loud. This sucks. This is, this is bad. This is bad. I may need help with this. That's not self-pity. That's the other part of self-pity. It doesn't do anything to help itself. It's, 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 it's a question and an answer. Self-pity is its own question and it's its own answer. And it fulfills itself. It's a snake eating its own tail. It goes nowhere. There's no, there's no, oh, this is bad. Fuck, oh, I, I feel so fucked up about this. Well, I really want to feel better. So let me see if I can get some help. Let me see if I can make some lifestyle changes. Let me see if I can do something about this. Self-pity is nothing. None of that. It is bleating. It's, um, oh, I didn't drink enough coffee yet today. There's something called, uh, it's, it's, from, it's from biology, but it actually is one of these wonderful things in biology that applies very well to psychology. And I think it's from game theory. And somebody noticed, somebody who was one of the big developers of game theory uh, was noticed the response of feeding parents in birds to the, what do you call that? Where a, a little chicklet is asking for the worm to be put in its mouth, whatever noise that makes, the asking, the complaining, the whining. It's actually, please put a worm in my mouth. Sounds gross. It's saying, please feed me. Please feed me. It's not this sucks. I'm going to do something about it. And I'm going to announce it to my tribe. Also valid. Also valid. Or you could say, this sucks, guys. Would you be able to, I don't know what to do. Can you advise me? I have some ideas for practical steps. Can you help me? I don't think you guys can advise me or help me, but I'm just going to let you know that these are the action steps I'm taking. All of them, varying scale of, of, of validity. It's pretty rude to say to people like, I'm just, I'm going to tell you, but I'm not going to ask you ask. You're just announcing that you're going to do something. Why don't you ask the other members of the tribe? What do you, if you respect us enough to want to tell us, you should respect us enough to ask for our opinion and ask for advice. But it's none of those things. It is a statement that is neither advice seeking nor solution seeking. My life sucks. That's the primary message. The secondary message is cheap, 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 put worms in my mouth. Why am I saying all this? This question comes from somebody who um, is on my uh, 30 day challenge. The 30 day challenge is an extrapolation of something that I did in Kuala Lumpur back in 2014 um, when I started digging myself out of the hole uh, that I was in there in terms of mental health um, and depression. I gave myself, I, I, I basically pulled together. I got really, really pissed off one day. It's a long story. It's, it's written, I'm, I'm writing about it in the book. Um, but I, it was a it was a rainy day, like pissing with rain, and I was sat on an old couch that was at the bottom of a, a dirty Ebola virus ridden couch um, at the bottom of this block of flats. And the um, the Vietnamese bar girls who were all crammed into the apartment above the one that I was living in had come down, and they were all being ferried into vans, um, like, like running in the rain, trying not to let their makeup be spilled into two vans that then took them to the bar that they worked at down the road. And I was looking at the old couch and looking at them and I was like, my life stinks. This is, I don't know how I ended up here, but I need to get out. And um, I just pulled together all of the personal development, uh, spiritual, you know, I used to listen to everything that Hayes House produced, everything that sounds true. You, you, people who are into personal development know this, like Buddhism, Louise L. Hay, Thich Nhat Hanh, Eckhart Tolle, Deepak Chopra, Wayne 
Wayne Dyer, um, God, even beyond, you know, back to the the olden days, like Zig Ziglar. I was like, what, what, what would these people recommend that I do? And it'd be like, okay, why don't you set yourself 30 days and you're going to do several different things a day. Uh, mine was more like to do with thought, word, deed. It was like, how do I clean up my thinking? How do I clean up my action? So how do I engage in righteous action, righteous thought, uh, and righteous words? And it was 30 days. I was like, I'm going to commit to do this for 30 days. And um, what actually happened in my life was I didn't even complete the 30 days. I didn't even do what I was supposed to do every day properly. I think I got like 18 or 19 days in and my life did a full 180. I, by the end of it, I don't think I completed it because I, th I was like, I think I forgot. I was like, I don't really need this now. And so I just didn't do it. So, and I was working heavily with intent as well. There's a lot of intent and visualization there. So I thought I'll run an experiment and see if I can do this for people with uh, CPTS, long-term trauma. So I created the 30 day challenge. And during the 30 day challenge, I give people like a short video every day and a short audio every day and an exercise to do every day. Things to do with emotional literacy, focusing intent, moving forward into a better future. But there's a lot of resilience training that goes into it where I'm trying to pull people out of their sad baby archetypal emotional flashback response of cheap, 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 cheap. Somebody do this for me. Somebody come save me. So I say a lot. Nobody's coming to save you. You've got to do it yourself. Nobody's coming to save you. Internalize the locus of control. Nobody's coming to save you. And I also say, don't, do not whinge. Don't permit yourself the indulgence of negativity. There's even a book out there called You Can't Afford the Luxury of a Negative Thought. It's one of these books that I've never read, but I love the title. I love the title. Uh, Feel the fear and do it anyway. I think I read, I think I listened to like half of the audio version, but the title's amazing. That's a great title. Feel the fear and do it anyway. Boom. Um, you can't afford the indulgence of a negative thought. Beautiful title. Perfect. It tells you everything. It's an indulgence. So we've got to be disciplined. We've got to clean it up because what you'll see, especially on online forums, is a lot of uh, cheap, cheap. Somebody in the comments will have to tell me what that is. It's when a little bird asks for mummy or daddy bird to feed it. What is that called? I don't know what it's called. <laughs> but you're hoping that somebody does it for you. When you're a child, the locus of control is completely external. But we're not children anymore. We're adults. When we're growing up, if we're allowed to attach properly and then detach properly and individualize by parents who are semi-sane, they don't need to be perfect, but they don't need to be philosopher kings, but they don't need to be semi-sane and they don't damage that process, we learn to internalize the locus of control most of the time. Even quote-unquote healthy, sane, neurotypical people go back into an externalized locus of control. They can be knocked into it. Mainstream media, uh, its primary function um, is to knock people into an external locus of control. Why? Because they work for, this is not paranoid conspiracy theory, this is just legitimate fact. I mean, look at BBC News. It's a, it's a governmental body. It works for the government. It doesn't want people to have an internal locus of control. It wants externalized locus of control. So, I was saying, don't whinge, don't whinge. And then a couple of days, I was like, oh, shit. What if people misinterpret that as I can never complain? And I'm like, no, I want them to be able to complain. I want you to be able to voice a complaint to yourself. I want you to be able to say, I don't like this. I don't like this situation. I don't like this person. I don't like this restaurant. I don't like this hotel. That doesn't mean you do necessarily storm out. But we should at least have the internal boundary to be able to say, this restaurant is weird. The atmosphere is strange. The weight is pretty rude. You should be able to do that, but some people can't. 
like like I said in the beginning, for some of you, if you don't have codependency and fawning issues, you'd be like, what is this video about? This makes, this is not relevant. So back to the plot, um, I, I wanted people to understand that they can complain. And so this lady has asked this question. So I think if you're being drawn into conversations you don't really want to have, um, the, the, the way that I handle it nowadays is I remember the distinction between dogs and wolves. I don't know if this is true at a biological level. I don't even remember where I heard this. I probably heard this on Joe Rogan, um, which is about as, as, as scientifically valid a source as there is, which is that dogs are wolf cubs. They've been bred to be wolf cubs. I, I think it was uh, Joe Rogan. And they never grow out of childhood. That's why you have like a golden retriever at age 10 who's still silly. He just cares about food. He just cares about being petted. He just cares about playing. He just wants to jump in the pool. I love them. I think, I think they're great. But they're baby wolves to the day that they die. That's the breeding protocol that they go through. doesn't matter if this is biologically true. I don't want to hear about it in the comments. Like, it's not wrong. There are different species. It doesn't matter. Take it as a metaphor. Civilized wolves are dogs in this metaphor. And dogs are wolf cubs. And they never grow up. They're fawning because they're hoping to get food and love from humans. Wolves don't fawn. Wolves never fawn. So being an adult is being a non-fawning, not a cub, but a wolf, not a dog, but a wolf. There's no fawning required. You don't need to have this conversation with this person. I want to uh, want somebody to stop weaving and imposing their emotional political views on me during a friendly, hi, how are you conversation. Why do they feel like they can? Here's a little tip for you. Um, you don't have to smile at people. To smile at people. It's not your job to make other people feel comfortable. Stop smiling so much. I see people at seminars and they tell me that they're being bullied at work and they're like this, they're with their eyes wide. <laughs> like, stop nodding and smiling all the fucking time. You look like somebody who's going to get bullied. Stop nodding, stop smiling and stop doing this with your eyes. That You see this? This is a human expression that's there to, to indicate lack of threat, lack of arrogance. It's not my job to, to present myself as a lack of threat to you. If, you. if you see me as a threat, I don't need to be like, oh, I have no weapons. Oh, just look, no weapons, no threat. Mm. I don't have to fucking do that shit. That's your problem. If you're paranoid or you're weak or you're cowardly and you're threatened by me, that's your problem. Now, when I look at people, I do this. We go, oh, you have a resting bitch face. The face God gave me. I'm not performing for you. If you want to know me, you can start speaking to me, but you'll be polite and you'll be boundaried. I don't, I, I'm never rude to people. I'm very, very non-confrontational with people, but I won't offer them my time and my attention. I'll quite happily walk away. I'll quite happily just get up and leave. In fact, I don't think I've had a verbal confrontation with somebody in the last few years uh, who was imposing some stupid conversation on me. I just leave and they know. They know perfectly well that I just wasn't having it anymore. So don't, um, with uh, narcissistically abusive relationships, for example, that form a dyad, that requires two people. And the codependent fawn responder leans in. Don't lean in. Don't please. Placebo, the placebo effect means I will please. You're nocebo. You do not please. I'm not here to please you. I'm so, uh, Well, you find me threatening. Well, okay, maybe that's something you need to see a counselor about. Maybe, maybe you're thin-skinned. Maybe you're insecure. It's not my problem to make you feel comfortable. I've wasted a lot of my life um, and a lot of my energy fighting to make people feel comfortable because I know that they saw me as a threat. That's their problem, 
not mine. Uh, so if you're trying to be very friendly with people and you're trying to be friends with everyone, you'll end up being friends with nobody. And it sounds like this person has targeted you and feels like they can just offload on you. So stop smiling. Stop doing this with your eyes. Don't do this. The no lip um, white people smile. Apparently only white people do it. I remember seeing this on a YouTube video and I was like, I've never seen any other race do that. Is there another race that goes, it's just white people. Because if your lips are out, this is a sign of arrogance. It's too fucking bad then. <laughs> You're just going to have to deal with it. You don't have to please people. You're not put on this planet to make other people feel secure and comfortable as much as your parents may have tried to indoctrinate. Otherwise, that's not necessary. So you do you. Let them do them. They're an adult. You're an adult. And I think the big picture of what we're seeing right now in society and human culture in general is this effort to try and keep the illusion together. The effort to try and keep our social contract together in the face of overwhelming evidence that the social contract is nonsense. Um, one element of that is our fear that anybody should die, but only when the eye of the media and the eye of the world is on them. I was listening to a nurse yesterday say, hey, it's like the world has forgotten that people die every day. All you're seeing is numbers. <gasps> 443 more people have died. Yeah, they die all the time. Have you ever been to a hospice? Have you ever been to a hospital where you've watched a friend or a family member die? I have, a couple of times. COVID-19, eventually they die because the fluid fills up in their lungs and they can't pump it out. I'm like, yeah. When you get palliative medicine, that's exactly what happens to you. They give you morphine at such high doses, they know that your lungs won't pump the fluid out of them anymore. And eventually they fill with water and you die. I've sat and watched people get pumped full of morphine until their lungs stop. I know exactly how it sounds. I know exactly how it looks. This is not new. This is standard operational procedure for when people are being um, not anesthetized, you know, where you legally kill them. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. But where, ah, wait, ah, oh, oh my, ah, oh, oh no, oh no, no, ah. Oh. Just, no, that's normal. It's normal. When people are very old, when they have comorbidity, or they're very, very, very fat, very, very fat, uh, which is what we're finding as well. A lot of the people who are passing away from COVID-19 are very, very fat, or they're smokers. Um, yeah, yeah, they'll, uh, they'll die. Eventually, they'll, they'll pass away. That's, that's, that's life. Um, some people are young. Yes, I know. I've watched mates of mine pass away in their 30s from cancer and bowel-related issues. Because of certain lifestyle choices they were making and certain things that happened, people die. There's an effort to sort of, stop, no. no you're not going to stop that. And if, if, we, if we accept it and just go, okay, that's the thing that's happening, we won't be caught in this trap. The narcissist catches in traps of our desire to save the world and our desire to stop suffering when they know perfectly well that you can't stop suffering. And at the same time, they're ramping up the suffering as much as they, as they can. It's for us to accept there is suffering in this world. There is disappointment in this world. We cannot save everybody. You have a narrow, narrow, narrow chance of saving yourself. You commit with a lot of discipline and a lot of effort. You might save yourself at the psychological, emotional, and ultimately spiritual level, but you won't save anybody else. That's a fantasy. That's a saviour fantasy, uh, which codependents and form responders must uh, get past. Okay, ladies and gents, thank you very much for your time and for your question. 
Uh, I won't name the person who sent this. Um, SR, thank you for your question. Uh, I enjoyed answering it. Stay grateful for everything you have, folks, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon.